I thought I'd talk about three things today. First, how I became an oceanographer. Second, how you too can become oceanographers, <laughs> if you want to be. And third, how to stop being one. Uh, I went to Pomona College a long, long time ago. I started out wanting to be a journalist. But I came under the spell of a great professor, Alfred Woodford, professor of geology. He was still alive, by the way, at the age of 93. He was so enthusiastic. What he said was so, talked about was so exciting that I gave up journalism completely and decided to become a geologist. And uh, this was, of course, a very exciting thing to do, geology at that time. Almost nothing was known about the Earth. Everything was, was in, in, uh, to, to be found out about it. And that was what Woody taught us. He taught us all the wonderful things that could be found out about the Earth. Uh, I finally ended up as a graduate student at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography in La Jolla to look at some mud. This was part of my geological education some mud that had been collected from the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. By that time, I'd probably subconsciously realized that I wasn't really cut out to be a geologist because I was scared of, I was frightened of heights. And one of the things that geologists have to do is climb mountains. And the better mountain climbers they are, the better the geologists they are, usually. But uh, the Scripps Institution at that time was a very small place. There were five graduate students, five faculty members, and a budget of about $100,000 a year. It now has a 180 graduate students, 125 faculty members, and a budget of about $60 million a year. So oceanography has changed during my, during my lifetime. But as a, as a, as a fresh-caught graduate student at La Jolla, one of my fellow graduate students says, you're the new boy on the block here. You have to go out to sea with us tomorrow morning. And he said, we'll stop by your house and pick you up about 2.30 2 in the morning, and we'll drive down to, to uh, Point Loma, where the boat is. And he did, they, 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 they did stop by at this ungodly hour in the morning, drive down in the old uh, Scripps Institution Chevrolet to Point Loma, climb aboard a little 65-foot ex-purse sainer called the Scripps, and we sailed out into the San Diego trough about 15 miles west of Point Loma. We spent the day there making what was called an oceanographic section, that is, measuring temperature and salinity and collecting plankton samples, doing all the things that oceanographers at that time did when they, when they took what was called a station. About 11.30 in the morning, 11 o'clock maybe, the senior graduate student says, you're the new boy here, so you get to cook. So I went down into the smelly little galley, cooked up what I thought was a wonderful meal of, of steak and sliced tomatoes and boiled potatoes. Uh, uh, the, others, the others members of the, of the, of the party came down and, and ate lunch in absolute silence, never saying a word, got out after about 10 minutes and said, it makes us seasick down here. Why don't you stay down and do the dishes? So I did that, and then I came back on deck and continued to work with the with the oceanographic section, and we finally uh, got our work done and went home, arriving home about 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock at night. That was probably the most wonderful day I ever spent in my life. And I decided right then and there that 
I was going to be an oceanographer. That, that uh, the chance to be a sailor and a scientist at the same time was really something that, that how could you be luckier? And I, ha I was an oceanographer for a lo very long time after that, gradually rising to be a professor and, and a director of the Scripps Institution. And in some ways, w watching the development of this science, this wonderful science, for 50 years. Now, I, I thought I might say a word about how one can become an oceanographer, how young people can become oceanographers today and why you should be. One of the reasons why you should be is that, that art and science are really very closely related. If you want to be an artist or a scientist, it's almost the same thing. There are some differences, but basically what, a, what an artist needs and what a scientist needs is A, a seeing eye, to be able to see things that other people don't see. A wonderful example of that in science is James Hutton, the fa father of modern geology. He looked at Hadrian's Wall that stretched across England. Hadrian's Wall had been built about 2,000 years before, and it was hardly weathered at all. It was still there, that wall, without much change. And he realized then that geologic processes must be very slow. He'd, he'd walked around his native city of Edinburgh, and seen thick layers of stratified sediments, and below those, other layers of sediments that were tilted up at an angle of 70 degrees or thereabouts, with a, with a huge unconformity in between. That is, a huge break in between. And he, he realized from, from, his, from seeing something that other people hadn't seen, that, this, that these rocks must be very old, inconceivably old. If, Had if Hadrian's Wall had hardly changed at all in 2,000 years, and these rocks were there and, and, and bent and distorted and folded and eroded, that there was the geologic time must be quite different than human time. He said, in fact, I see no vestige of a beginning and no prospect of an end. This, was in, this flew in the face of the doctrine of the time, which was that the Earth had begun, that the Earth had been created at 4,037 B.C. at 9 o'clock in the morning, which was the standard theological doctrine. And it was, of course, because of, of Hutton's seeing eye that he saw something that other people hadn't seen, namely the, the, un, the uneroded nature of Hadrian's Wall. The second thing that science and art both require is imagination the ability to relate things that have not been related before. One of the marvelous examples in art is, is, uh, when, is this statement that Romeo makes when he finds Juliet dead in the tomb. And he bends over her and he says, death has sucked the honey from thy lips. Thinking of death as the, as the sting, the sting of death, and therefore the sting of a bee, and what bees do, of course, is suck honey from a flower, and his Juliet was a flower. That's something we all recognize immediately as a, a, a figure of speech which, which encompasses and, encap and, and encapsulates a great deal of our, of our experience of life. 
In science, uh, perhaps an outstanding example is Newton's lying on his back in his mother's garden and watching an apple fall from a tree. And he said, that, why does that apple fall and the moon stay in its orbit? And, and that relationship between the apple and the moon was really the beginning of the Newtonian revolution, the basis of all modern science. The third thing that artists and, and scientists have in common is, it, is the necessity of doing a great deal of hard work. You don't do any, uh, any good art, as one, as one could easily see by reading the biographies of artists, without an enormous am amount of effort, an enormous amount of persistence and, and uh, devotion to the job. And exactly the same thing is true of science. Science is about 95 to 80 to 99 percent sheer drudgery. It's re that drudgery is relieved by that 1 percent of the time when you make a discovery. That's almost like having an orgasm. That discovery has an ecstasy to it that, that uh, is unbelievable, and it makes up for all that drudgery. But, but science and art differ in one way, and that way is that, that we all see something that the artist does right away. We, 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 when he's, what he's seen, what he's imagined, what he's worked on so hard, it comes to us as an insight, uh, an, an intuitive or instinctive insight. Whereas the scientist has to prove what his discoveries. He has to, he has to make a, a, a demonstration that, in fact, they, they are correct, or at least more correct, than what was thought before. So, th so that science and art do differ in that, in that one important respect. Now, why should you become an oceanographer? Well, because it's an exciting and fun thing to do. Oceanography is, is one of the most enjoyable ways to spend one's life that I can think of. But also, it's an important thing to do. We're just beginning to realize that the Earth is a unique body in the solar system, perhaps in our galaxy, and perhaps in the universe. The universe is the, the, the Earth is the home of life, of living things that have evolved and changed over three and a half billion years, or perhaps even longer than that. No other planet that we know of in the solar system is capable of supporting life at all, except the Earth. And, why it, and what is it that, that makes the Earth capable of doing this? The primary reason is probably something that the geologists, that has just revolutionized geology and the Earth sciences, and that is the phenomenon of plate tectonics. The fact that the surface of the Earth is continually being renewed by, by upwelling of material from deep within the, from deep within the interior. So there's a continual recycling of the materials on the surface of the Earth, and that's been going on continuously ever since the beginning. It's because of this phenomenon of plate tectonics that the Earth has an ocean. And the ocean is, is absolutely essential to living things. It's because of the, of, of, of probably because of plate tectonics, that the carbon dioxide in the air has never been very large or very small. It's always been just the right amount so that the temperature of the surface of the Earth has been that the temperature of liquid water. And liquid water is another thing that's essential to life. It's because of the, of the 
of the life processes that, in fact, life itself has evolved, and particularly, of course, the production of, of oxygen by plants, which has made it possible for animals to exist, because animals can't exist without free oxygen. So that, that, the, that the Earth is unique in many different ways, and our, prob our problem is to understand why it's unique. How did it ever get to be this way? Was it because of divine intervention? Was it because of, just because of chance? Or was it because of some deep-seated set of phenomena that, that, give, that give the Earth its unique properties? Throughout its history, its temperature has been just about what it is now for nearly four billion years. Now, in order to become an oceanographer, uh, my belief is that it's necessary first to get, a, to get a general education. Don't try to become an oceanographer or a marine biologist when you first go to college. Take every possible, as Dr. McCulloch said this morning, take every possible kind of course in college. Learn as much as you can about everything, because everything is interesting and exciting, and, and more particularly, it's to the point, it's relevant. Second, get a, good founding, get a good foundation in the basic sciences, chemistry, physics, biology, and mathematics. Because oceanography is not really a science, it's the application of the basic sciences to an object of study, namely the Earth, and particularly that part of the Earth that's covered with water. So, so we, we, we don't make the kinds of discoveries that Maurice Goldhaber makes or has made in, in finding out about the nature of matter, what we do is to, is to apply those discoveries to this object, this wonderful and, and incredible object, the Earth. And that means that we have to be an oceanographer, you need to know a lot of chemistry and physics and, and, and biology and mathematics. Then, then by the time you get to, be, to graduate school, then you can specialize in one of these aspects of the ocean sciences. Finally, I promised I'd say a word about how to stop being an oceanographer, which I have done uh, in, my, in my later years, pretty much. One reason for that is that I wasn't very well educated when I, when I, was, when I was a graduate student. A lot of the mathematics that's now, that's now used in oceanography wasn't even, it wasn't even invented when I was a graduate student. Oceanography turns out to be a young man's game, not because it's hard, it's, it's a hard work to go to sea, but because the, the, the science is constantly changing. So I've become more involved in, in what one might call humanistic questions than in act, the actual sciences of the sea. One of the reasons for this was that right from the beginning I realized that you can't study the ocean without international scientific cooperation without involving countries and people from all over the world. And the reason is that the ocean is just one object all over the Earth. A teaspoonful of water that you pick up off the pier in La Jolla has, mo has molecules of water in it that have been everywhere on the surface of the Earth. And every, every teaspoon will have those same molecules. So we have to know about the ocean as a whole, and that means we have to know about the Earth as a whole. And we can only do that, in fact, it's quite impossible to do it, without working with scientists from other countries, and particularly the developing, the, the poor countries, which cover most of the Earth, and particularly uh, contain most of the shorelines of the Earth. I also became involved 
in, the, in these problems of developing countries uh, in another way when I was uh, working in federal government and was working, in fact, for, for the President Kennedy's science advisor, Jerry Wiesner. And we, start, and we uh, went to Pakistan and studied there the problems of, of agricultural development in the Indus Plain, the great Indus Plain of West Pakistan. And I became fascinated by these problems of developing countries, the poor countries, the countries in which populations were rapidly growing and in which technology was, was lagging behind, technology and also social structure. And I must say that it's, it's in these latter things that I've gained the greatest satisfaction in life. I've been able to lose myself in, a, in things that are bigger than I am. Causes that, that don't, where, where you don't get any credit. Causes where, in fact, what, you, what is accomplished uh, is, 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 is the accomplishment of a lot of people working together. And my quite positive and frank belief, I really do believe this quite deeply, is that the, that the greatest fun, the greatest satisfaction, the greatest ju self-justification and reason for existence that one can have is to lose oneself in a cause that's greater than one than one is oneself. One of the ways in which I've done that was to help build a university in San Diego. But but that I've been involved with many other things of that kind. And and, and if I'm going to give you one piece of advice, it is find a cause. It doesn't have to be a big cause. It just has to be bigger than you are, and work on it and devote yourself to it wholeheartedly completely lose yourself in it. Thank you very much.